Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 98 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. To part two of episode number 98 of my sexy music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, Orange Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a sexy music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks, then do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. And that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio the song was recorded at, the history behind the recording studio, and also um, the history behind the artists that recorded the song, as well as the writers that wrote it and where this where the studio was located at and also the, the label song was released on where that label located at the history behind that as well and the peak position the song made up originally on the billboard hot 100 chart when it first came out in the year month it was released all that is in the second part of this show now before we move on this week's episode of the podcast i want to give you guys a heads up next week's episode is going to be an interview episode with the bass player for Tommy and James and Sean Dells, his name is Mike Vail. He's agreed to be on my podcast, and I'm really, really excited to talk to him because he's played some really recognizable bass lines on some incredible 60s pop rock records from the late 60s. And he is, you know, I, I, I haven't talked to him yet. I've just, you know, messaged him on Facebook, but he seems like a really nice guy. But anyways... Um, so that's what's going to happen for the 100th episode of the podcast. And yeah, so, um, you know, basically the interview is going to talk about how insane of a career they had from being signed to a record label that was owned and controlled by the New York City mob. I mean, that's just crazy. And I know I've talked, I've done one episode in Tommy James and Shondells. And, you know, like I said, most most of the press that they've had in, in the past has come from the lead singer and the guy who wrote a lot of the songs, but you don't really hear too much from the other members of the band. So it's going to be really cool getting get getting get to interview one of the members of the band that wasn't the lead singer, kind of get things from his point of view. So definitely excited to do that. Um, if there's anything you want you want me to cover while I'm talking, please email that to me at samltwilliicloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and let me know what you want me to talk about in that interview episode. But I'm definitely excited to talk to him. So that's going to be for episode 100 of this podcast. So it's going to be really cool. Moving on, let's get into the history behind this week's artist and song. And again, there is going to be some double dipping going on with the previous episode of this podcast. Actually, a couple weeks ago when I did Ricky Nelson. So please bear with me because uh, this particular artist holds a very unique place in rock and roll history. And it's different than the teen idols and the rock and roll stars of the mid to late 50s because... The Everly Brothers didn't fall into any of those categories. I mean, they weren't teen idols like Ricky Nelson or Frankie Avalon or Paul Lanka. I mean, they were a duo, essentially, so they weren't didn't necessarily fall into that category. And they weren't 
extreme rock and rollers like Little Richard and Jerry Lewis and Chuck Berry because, I mean, their stuff was a little bit on the lighter side of things. It wasn't totally just in-your-face, balls-to-the-wall rock and roll like what those guys were doing. But their style of their two-part harmony is very different at the time because there weren't too many other groups that had that very specific type of harmony that they had when they first came about in 1957. And let me explain something to you. The Everly Brothers also held a very specific place in popular music history as being one of the very rare acts that could have top 10 hits with recording with just their voices, their guitars, and no one else. Uh, Their first handful of records were done this way and were very stripped down with no other real form of instrumentation besides themselves. Um, You know, Bye Bye Love is a really good example of this, but they had some other ones too, like Bird Dog and a couple of other songs were just done just with them and their guitars, and that was it. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, there weren't too many, even through the grand scheme of popular music history, right, from 55 on, I mean, there weren't too many songs that made the charts that had just one instrument and just vocals, and that's it. I mean, typically songs like that were just regulated as just demos and not, like, actual, like, recordings. And, you know, it would be a very, very long time before songs like that could actually become popular and hit the charts. And and uh, a couple of, couple of recent examples of songs like that where it's just one vocal and one instrument where Adele's someone like you and Bruno Mars when I was your man. Those are those are songs that basically only had one instrument and one voice and that was in. Those were huge hits, but again, very rare where it did songs like that where it was basically just one instrument and one voice would make the charts. A lot of times... You know, versions of the songs are regulated just demos. But anyways, um, you know, those songs came out 50 plus years after Bye Bye Love. And they proved that that, you know, that people could still like songs with just one instrument and, and one voice. And that's it. I mean, people could still, you know, listen to songs like that, you know, and, and songs like that could still wi- be wildly well, well loved. And their very intricate acoustic guitar playing at the time, you know, definitely influenced Simon and Garfunkel, because Simon and Garfunkel worshipped, <laughs> you know, the Everly Brothers big time. But at the time, it seemed like the industry didn't know what to do with them or properly brand the Everly Brothers. I mean, they certainly were not country and western, nor were they straight rock and roll or doo-wop, but they came out of a country music town. And yet, they were definitely influenced by country stars at the time, but by no means were they considered like a country act. But in the sense, they were really a hybrid of country and western in the likes of Hank Williams and Hank Snow. And pop stars like Paul Anka and Frankie Avalon and people like that. I mean, you know, again, they weren't as super extreme, you know, as a sex symbol as Elvis, you know. And they also weren't like super, like, you know, really balls to the wall, really heavy rock like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. They weren't exactly like that. And, uh, and, but they, you know, again, it was two guys, it wasn't just one, so they didn't fall under the teen idol sort of, you know, you know, thing that, uh, standard that a lot of those artists follow at the time. And just an FYI, the sound of the two-part harmony, you know, that the Everly Brothers developed in the late 50s and early 60s was reused and slightly altered by the band that you probably know about called The Beatles, as John and Lennon and Paul McCartney were huge diehard fans of the duo. And they decided they wanted to do a two-part harmony just like them, but just not do it the same way they did. I mean, basically, uh, the Everly Brothers did their harmonies in diatonic thirds. I think the Beatles didn't do exactly that. 
So if you think about it, the earliest incarnation of the Beatles was that two-part harmony like the Everly Brothers, you know, with Paul on bass and John on guitar, and then they had a lead guitar player and a drummer. So, you know, it was the Everly Brothers plus two other guys, if you think about it. So as you can already see, the Everly Brothers are hugely influential to other groups that would come after them, but a lot, a lot of their hugely successful acts at the time, you know, were definitely influenced by the Everly Brothers, but... Really, you know, since they were uh, they were brothers and it was a it was essentially a family uh, group, their history is plagued with a lot of sibling rivalry, which is at the time very strong and it was true, especially for family groups. And you know, they actually got into drugs as well, and you know, a lot of business issues um, because a lot of you know, again, like there are some songs that they recorded that. They originally shared co-writing authorship with, but, you know, th you know, actually, you know, there was a lot of battles between that. And I'll go into that a little bit later. But and their success was really all kickstarted when they moved to Nashville. I mean, that's when they really hit the ground running, you know, and started to have major hits. And how they came to Nashville was kind of interesting because they spent most of their childhood in Shenandoah, Iowa. And their dad and their had his own radio show in that city. And that's when their dad invited him to come sing on the show. And this is when they were kids. This was like in the 40s. And that is when they got their first taste of exposure. I mean, basically, you know, at the time they were built, built as little boys, Don and Phil. I mean, that's basically like, you know, they were just kids at the time, but they were on the radio singing, you know, songs. And this was when, you know, this was when they really got their first taste of show business. But this was like in the 40s. So this is pretty much before rock and roll. But once the 50s came along, the family moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, and that is where the brothers finished part of their high school, and then they finished the rest of it in Nashville, and when they decided to move out, move over there, and when they moved to Nashville in the mid-50s, it was a chance meeting with a very big Nashville-based guitar player that would ultimately change your life. You see, when they, when they were in Nashville, and this was like in 1956, right? Mid-50s, and was taken off. It was huge. Um, they met a guy named Chet Atkins, who at the time ran RCA Studios in Nashville. I mean, he was a very, very big uh, session guitar player and producer in Nashville at the time. You know, worked with a lot of different acts, you know, and, had, and was, a, was an artist in his own right as well. Gretchen made a bunch of guitars, you know, you know, based off of him, essentially, you know, they made custom guitars, especially for him. Uh, Chet introduced him to a guy named Wesley Rose, and Wesley Rose signed this signed them as songwriters to a publishing company owned by two guys named Roy Acuff and Fred Rose, and Fred Rose, Wesley's father, and the name of the publishing company was known as Acuff Rose, and you know. Here's the thing. Acuff Rose was probably one of the biggest publishing companies in Nashville at the time. And just to show you how big they were, a couple of their other writers were Hank Williams and Roy Orbison. <laughs> and though, and through Acuff Rose is how they met a local songwriting couple named Boodlow and Phyllis Bryant, and who basically became the duo's principal songwriters who would go on to write 90% of their earlier hits. And Wesley Rose also introduced him to Archie Blyer. And Archie Blyer at the time was looking for artists for his record label he had at the time known as Cadence. And, and when uh, Archie Blyer first heard the Everly Brothers through it, I believe it was a demo tape 
that got passed on to them by Wesley Rose, he soon signed the group to his label. You know, so if you think about it, Wesley Rose was the man who was responsible for making their career at the Everly Brothers happen. I mean, he introduced an Archie Blyer, you know, and basically, you know, an Archie Blyer signed the signed in the Cadence Records, and you know, he also introduced them, you know, to he also signed them to a, a publishing company he worked for called Acuff Rose. And, you know, we basically got, you know, the, the, the two the two guys on and fill a publishing deal, you know. And, you know, through Ake of Roses, how they met Bolo Felice Bryant. And Bolo Felice Bryant wrote 90% of the earlier hits, you know. So if you think about it, you know, Wesley Rose was the man behind the Everly Brothers at this time. But, you know, it wouldn't be till a little bit later on is when the Everly Brothers would kind of turn their back against Wesley Rose. And I'll talk about more of that in a second. But moving on, let's talk about the history b- behind last week's song, which was Kathy's Clown. Because at this point, the Everly Brothers had a huge string of hits, you know, on cadence, you know, with songs written by Bodlo and Felice Bryant and a couple songs that they wrote as well. And but this particular song was the most important one in their career because by the time they had number one hit with the song or the Billboard Hot 100, the whole popular music landscape had changed dramatically as 50s rock and roll stars like Lil Richard and Jerry Lewis were no longer having hits while Fats Domino and Elvis were still going strong. I mean, Elvis had just gotten out in the army when this song became number one. And teen idols like Paul Anka and Ricky Nelson and Bob Rydell took over the pop charts. While at the same time, soul music was being developed from doo-wop and rhythm and blues by artists like Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, and the Drifters. So if you think about it, how did the Everly Brothers fit in to all this? I mean, what was their place in this very interesting sort of, you know, mixed up landscape, which was popular music at the time? Well, if you think about it, their sound had a tight-knit, full-band sound of guitars, bass, and drums, and with piano, that would become the industry standard for British invasion bands that would come after them. And this is definitely apparent with songs like Till I Kissed You and this one, Kathy's Clown. I mean, there were other songs that exuberated this exact same sort of instrumentation, and one of them was Walk Right Back. And the other interesting thing to point out about this is that they were assigned to the same publishing company as Roy Orbison, but they didn't sound anything like Roy Orbison, even though they recorded in the same studio as Roy and used the same musicians and engineer Roy used on all of his records, for the most part. Um, and about a year after Buddy Holly and Richie Valens and the Big Bopper died in a plane crash in February of 1959, the Crickets backing band actually took over as the Everly Brothers backing band and did shows with them and went on TV with them, you know, but the Crickets did not go with the Everly Brothers when they went in the studio to record, for the most part. And that leads me to talk about the behind-the-scenes aspect of last week's song, which was Kathy's Clown. You see, the song served as a turning point for the Everly Brothers' career because it was their Third, first single released on Warner Brothers, and let's talk about that for a second because, you know, um, you may be familiar with Warner Brothers if you're a film or movie, but but I bet you didn't know that they had their own record label, and was also in the record business starting in the late fifties. I mean, they had their own publishing company in the thirties and forties, but they didn't really start f- pressing physical copies of albums and and you know and forty fives until really the fifties. Um, but let's talk about this because, you know, 
when rock and roll was booming in the late 50s, you know, with, you know, just, it was everywhere. It was in a huge explosion. It felt like nobody was going back to the way things were before. Any record label that wouldn't have rock and roll artists on the roster would suffer. So the labels that were created by the big movie studios at the time, and these included like MGM and 20th Century Fox and Paramount, you know, they started to cr- have rock and roll artists on their labels. But the main reason as to why they even got into record business in the first place was because rock, the, uh, the rock and roll boom, even though some of them were around even before that happened. And that certainly jumped on, they certainly jumped on the chance to catch on that craze as soon as it happened. I mean, you know, and this, this also includes, you know, basically, you know, the, the TV studios like ABC and CBS. I mean, CBS had their own record label and so did ABC because ABC partnered with ABC Paramount, but that's besides the point. Um, and Warner Brothers was one of the last labels created by a movie studio and production company to jump headfirst into the music business. I mean, you know, they really were late, you know, to the party in, in that sense. Um, but they're but essentially their first ever pop singles put out were by artists that starred in their TV shows that they produced. I mean, you know, one of their first big hits, you know, as um, as as a label included Ed, uh, you know, Connie Stevens and Ed Burns doing "Cookie Goo Led Me Your Comb," you know, and they both starred in you know Warner Brothers TV shows like Hawaii Nine Seventy Seven Sunset Trip. Um, but that's besides the point. Um, but anyways, as I was saying, the Everly Brothers were the first true music acts they signed. I mean, they weren't actors, you know, that were trying to be singers. They were real singers. And at the time, they gave the duo the biggest recording advance any artist would ever get up until that time. They were originally offered $525,000 with the escalation royalty rate of 7% a pretty much unheard of advance at the time for any major and upcoming artist at the time. And one more notable thing to point out about all, all of these record labels created by the movie studios is that while all the major movie production companies had their own movie studios at the time and TV shows as well, they produced movies and TV, pretty much none of them had their own recording studios. So every 45 an album released on a movie studio label like MGM or 20th Century Fox was basically done in an independent studio not tied to any label. And a perf- and this, is, and this, and this uh, specific song is a perfect example of that. Okay, so let's talk about Kathy's Clown. The song was recorded not at Warner Brothers recording studios because at the time they didn't even have their own recording studios. It was recorded at RCA Studios in Nashville with Bill Porting engineering the session and Wesley Rose producing the session. And the entire song was recorded live in just one take and the Everly Brothers accompanied themselves on guitar. Then they had Ace Nashville session musicians Chet Atkins and Hank Garland on guitar, Floyd Kramer on piano, Floyd Chance on bass, and Buddy Harmon on drums. Now, if you want to learn more about the Nashville 18, go back and listen to the episode of Roy Orbison because I talked all about them. There are a group of really hot studio musicians in Nashville that recorded both in the country genre and in the Nashville sound country pop genre, which is a very brand new genre of music at the time. And I talked more about how that genre of music was developed when I did Roy Orbison, but you can go back and listen to that and you'll learn more about that. But anyways, let's talk about how they got the sound of two drummers on this song even though they only used one. Bill Porter, who was engineer on the session, had acquired a tape loop from RCA's New York studio. 
At the time, RCA, which is a huge record label, one of the biggest majors at the time, had studios in New York, Nashville, and L.A. And the the ta- the tape loop was at 60 IPS, and the tape loop machine had four different playback heads. And he discovered he could switch on and off between playback heads freely while the band was playing during the middle of a take. And he asked Wesley Rose if he could use it. He said, "Sure, I don't care. I mean, you know, it's your you're you're running the session, man. So you got it. You can do whatever you want." So when the band was ready to cut the track, Bill turned on and off the tape loop on the drums manually with a switch, and it gave him the effect of two drummers on the song, even though there was only one drummer on the session. I mean, basically, you know, he you know, he, he used the tape loop and he fed that tape back into the into into the into the loop and basically you know he turned turned the switch on and off using and basically he created that effect of there being two drummers in the song instead of one and that's how those drums sound so huge it was a really cool technique that he had a pretty revolutionary one you know considering that this was all done live and also, if you're wondering who was Kathy in the song, the song was inspired by one of the brothers' ex-girlfriends, and even though the song is credited to both Don and Phil as writers, after a certain amount of time passed, Phil actually sold the rights to the song, and Don became the only writer credited on the song. And this happened in the 80s. But then Phil's estate took legal action to get their co-writing credit back on the song after Phil died in 2014. And I'm pretty sure uh, the song was actually inspired by one of Don Deck's girlfriends. But anyways, uh, by the way, um, you know, when Everly Brothers were offered that huge advance of $525,000 with an escalating royalty rate of 7%, the, there wouldn't be another band that would that would top that amount of money they would a record label would offer them in advance, you know, up until... Uh, the Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin would be the next band that would get that big of a, an advance, but you know, but that was that was until years and years later. But anyways, so when Kathy's Clown was released in April of 1960, it climbed all the way number one in May June of 1960. And by the way, five hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. I mean, that's just like that. <laughs> that's definitely that. That's that was definitely a lot of money back then. It might not seem like a lot right now, but if you go look at an inflation calculator, you'll notice that that was definitely a lot of money back then, uh, you know, if you compare it to what, what the money was like back in 1960. But anyways, um, the Everly Brothers, after Kathy's Clown, after it went to number one in May, June 1960, followed up with a string of hits on Warner Brothers, and actually uh, Archie Blyer, who still owned the rights to a lot of songs that you know, that were on Cadence actually released some songs while they were, while they switched over to Warner Brothers. But when, when this happened, one huge thing happened with their work that someone affected their career, but not by a whole lot because they continued to have hits even after this happened. Okay. So on one of their Warner Brothers albums, and they actually did this as a single too, the Everly Brothers recorded a song that their producer, Wesley Rose, didn't own the publishing rights to. A song called Temptation, which was at the time a pretty old popular standard from the days before rock and roll. I mean, it was definitely very much part of that whole 20s and 30s jazz thing scene that was going on at that time. And when Wesley Rose caught wind of this, he was definitely not happy. And he shut off the Everly Brothers from being able to record any more songs written by A. Cuff Rose songwriters. And that also included them. So any more songs Duo would write, they would write under a different name to avoid having to be fined by their publishing company they were tied up with. 
And that's why the duo never recorded any more songs written by Bodlin and Felice Brighton, but they did manage to record some real building songs. I mean, you know, Crying in the Rain is a really good example of this because that was written by Howard Greenfield and Carol King. And sometime in 1962, the duo actually got drafted into the Army. And at that time, there was a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether or not they would be able to continue with their career, you know, while they were getting drafted into the, into the Army. And if you find this a little hard to believe, the Everly Brothers appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show wearing, you know, a full-on military uniform. And, and I'm being serious. They actually did this. <laughs> you can go back on YouTube and watch that clip of them in military uniform, and you'll be like, wow, they actually did get enlisted. And when they enlisted into the military in October of 1961, they were in it for two years, and by the time they came back, the Beatles were here, and the British invasion had arrived, and they both started to get into drugs. And not the psychedelic kind, but the kind that comes into a pill. And even though they continue to put out singles, and this is this is between the years 1963 and like 71, none of them made them higher higher on the charts than number 31, the pop charts, and that song was Gone Gone Gone. But their last charting song, which was a song that Archie Blyer actually owned the rights to, was a song called That's Old Fashioned, That's the Way Love Should Be. And they and they recorded that song on Warner Brothers. But you know, and, and it's interesting, and I'm pretty sure that song was recorded in Nashville too. But even though they weren't really having any hits, you know, when the British invasion was going on, you know, in 64 on, you know, their their career is pretty much done in America. They were treated like gods in, you know, the UK because the Beatles and the Hollies loved the Everly Brothers. They were huge fans. And they were considered pop royalty over there. And because of this, the Everly's continue to have a huge hit in the UK and in other countries as well. One of their biggest hits in the UK was a song called The Price of Love. And the Everly Brothers recorded a whole album in the UK with the Hollies backing them up. And they also wrote most of the songs on the album. And while they continued to tour, even though they rarely had any hits, you know, their very last top 40 hit ever was a song called Bowling Green, which came out in 1967, which was actually about Bowling Green, Kentucky, which was not very far from where the Everly Brothers grew up. It all came to an end when they did a gig at the Knott's Berry Farm in 1973. At that point, the group was, the, 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 the duo was very much at their throats. They started to experience heavy jealousy against each other. I mean, you know, they were, even though they were related to each other, they were very different. I mean, they didn't share the same politics, political beliefs. They were very just, you know, they, they didn't really get along that well. And just to show you how much they didn't get along that well, it all came to an end when one of the brothers smashed his guitar against the wall during this gig at Knott's Berry Farm, and the other finished it solo. So, you know, that, that, was, that was pretty intense. I mean, they did reunite, and they even did a tour with Simon and Garfunkel, but this was in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, they, 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 they did do occasional reunions, you know, in between this time. But ultimately what happened was that they were, they were no longer a duo anymore. And Phil Everett actually passed away in 2014 and you know when this happened you know don kind of you know was felt very bad about it you know and because there were because there were periods of time when they weren't talking to each other at all you know but you know and but at the same time he does you know he did think about him a lot and he did cherish the memories that they had as uh as as being a duo during the during the Everly brothers but you know, I mean, they were, like I said before, they were a huge influence on the Beatles because, you know, the, the Beatles own pretty much almost all their records and, 
you know, and the, and the Beatles got that specific two-part harmony from them, and they and they came before the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel too. I mean, Simon and Garfunkel has actually credited Don Everly as being one of the greatest rhythm guitar players, you know, of the, of the rock and roll era, which is a pretty cool thing to say from someone coming from someone as cool as Paul Simon. But yeah, so. Um, you know, again, so if you've never heard of the Evely Brothers, I guarantee you they're a very interesting group because, again, they influenced the Beatles, you know, and it just shows you, you know, where kind of me- where kind of things came from that other groups are kind of copy afterwards. And this is this will be very interesting if you're around age and you're just now getting into this group. So that concludes part two of episode number 98 of my sexy music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if, you, if you're around my age and you've never heard of this group before and you learn some really cool and interesting facts about them, and you know, you've never heard of the Everly Brothers and you're learning about them for the first time, you can email me at samltwilliaicloud.com, and you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Now, as always... Things you can check out there in the description of this episode of this podcast that are really, really cool if you're just discovering for the first time are the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. There you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some ones I've done an interview, talked about in interview episodes with the guests I've interviewed on my show. Um, you can find those playlists in the description of this episode of this podcast. You know, please go on there and check them out because, you know, there you'll be able to get a good idea for the kind of music I talk about on my show. Maybe you can even suggest me some songs that I haven't talked about on my podcast yet just from listening to those playlists so that we can get a really good idea for the kind of music I talk about on my podcast. And if you have any of those suggestions and you want to send those to me, you can do that by emailing me at samltwilliaicloud.com and you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And uh, yeah. Also, you can check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. And another thing you can do is that you can check out the official uh, Redbubble merch store for this podcast. There you'll be able to find the super cool logo that I personally uh, came up with. I had someone else design. It's basically the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode and keep on trucking tie-dye font with the name of my podcast in the bottom. And it's really, really cool. There's a bunch of different merchandise, merchandise items on there. You can go on there and check them out. And please, if you want to purchase one, please do that. I would really appreciate it. But if not, please send me some feedback on the prices of each item in the store, plus the logo itself. You can do that by emailing me at samltwilliaicloud.com. And you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. I'd really appreciate that. And like I said before, next week's episode is going to be Mike Phil, the bass player for Tommy James and Shondell. It's going to be really, really cool. I can't wait for you guys to listen to that. And I'm very excited to interview him. It's going to be really, really cool. But yeah. So anyways, um, that's going to be for episode 100. This is episode 98, part 2, which is also episode 99. But anyways, I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please, keep things groovy. Keep things groovy.